Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Uh, shout out to everybody joining us in person and those online. So about 11 years ago, I moved into Harlem. Uh, actually, I moved into an apartment right down the street from where we are sitting right now. And I'll never forget when I first moved into the neighborhood that it didn't feel like home just yet. Right? Like, it didn't feel like home when I signed my lease. It didn't feel like home when I gave away half of my life saving, all of my life saving for the security deposit. It didn't feel like home when Spectrum came and installed my Wi-Fi. It didn't start to really feel like home until a couple of months into living here on this neighborhood, the block started to welcome me in as their own. And it wasn't just the block in some random sense, it was a person in the neighborhood, the OG of the block, Mr. Mike. Now, Mr. Mike was the OG of 121st Street. He knew everybody and everything. If something was going on in the neighborhood, before the police knew about it, Mr. Mike knew. <laughs> and I used to uh, be really busy with work and stuff, and I remember coming home off of the subway and getting ready to run inside my apartment and try to chill and watch ESPN, and I would see Mr. Mike um, on the stoop. And there was a piece of me that was wisdom that said, you know what, instead of running inside to your apartment, maybe just chill out a little bit on the stoop. And I would stand out and talk to Mr. Mike and we would argue about the Knicks and he would tell me about life and his marriage, he had been married for 40 years. And I remember telling him about my wife Jessica when we were still dating at the time. I'll never forget Mr. Mike telling me, if you got a good one, don't let her go. And over the days of standing outside in the stoop and talking to Mr. Mike, Harlem just started to feel like home. It started to feel like coming off the subway and walking from 125th to 121st, it started to feel like I was welcomed, like I belonged, and in many ways, like I was safe. Uh, Mr. Mike passed away a couple of years ago, and when he did, they actually named this street after him Michael Lancaster Way. And every time I walk past that sign, um, <clears throat> I think about the gift that he gave me uh, to make a kid who was from the outside feel welcomed in a strange place, in a new place. And it got me thinking a lot about home and what home is meant to feel like and what home is supposed to be. Home is supposed to be a place where you are, where you're welcomed. Whenever you think about where you grew up and what home is for you, if that's New York or if that's somewhere else in the country, if it's a place you went back to this Thanksgiving or this Christmas, Home is a place where you don't have to question whether or not you are invited. You just walk in. Home is a place where you just go right to the refrigerator, the refrigerator and don't ask for permission. You know you belong there. Home is a place where you're supposed to be able to lay your head on the pillow and sleep and rest because you feel safe there. Now, as I was thinking about home and just the power of what it means to be home, two things came to mind. Number one, when people talk about Renaissance as their faith family, I hope they experience Renaissance as home. I hope they feel welcome. I hope they, you all know that you belong, and I hope you know you feel safe here. And I rely on you, especially our members, to make that a reality. But it also got me thinking about Jesus, and one of the reasons that Jesus has come is to make life with God feel more like home and less like your job. More like home and less like a classroom where you have to get a good grade and ace the test. 
properly understood, actually, to follow Jesus means that Jesus Christ makes life with God home. He makes you welcome. You belong. And you're safe. So we're in week three of this series called Jesus Is, and we are looking at these seven I am statements from Jesus. In these statements, Jesus is telling us exactly who he is. We said this every single week so far, that if you were to pass around a microphone and ask people who is Jesus, we would get a lot of descriptions of what he is like. But for this seven weeks, we are pausing to let Jesus fill in the blanks and tell us who he is. So this week, we are looking at Jesus saying he is the gate or the door. And the scripture that we find this is John 10, verses 1 through 10. So Jesus starts this, and he says, Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will, never, they will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. As a preacher, I love verse 6 because sometimes when I speak and people don't understand what I'm saying, I'm like, you see, y'all didn't understand Jesus either. <laughs> we too deep. Uh, verse 7, Jesus says again, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. Verse 9 again, Jesus says this, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. So if you grew up in, in Jesus' times, this metaphor of Jesus being the gate would have made a whole lot more sense um, to you. So in their context, shepherding was a very, very common thing. And we'll talk about Jesus being the good shepherd in a couple of weeks. But what Jesus is basically saying is he is alluding to something that would have already clicked in so many of their minds. So there were these, th these things called sheep pens. And a sheep pen was basically the area that sheep would be. So what a shepherd would do is they would get all of these really, really big rocks and they would construct a circular pen to keep all of the sheep safe and to keep wolves out, to keep predators out, and to keep the sheep in from being lost. Sheep are notoriously uh, animals who do not have a homing instinct. Uh, they will roam and not know where they're going. And it is a form of protection that the shepherd puts these big boulders in place, these big rocks in place to keep them in place and to keep predators out. Now, since these rocks were so big and so heavy, in order for there to be easy access in and out, what the shepherd would do is leave an opening in the front of the sheep pen and then they themselves would lay down and be the gate. So when Jesus is saying that he is a gate, he is saying, I am the shepherd that has constructed a pen to keep predators out and to keep you safe, to give you security. And I am the one who lays down myself at the entrance of it. I am access, I am your security and your protection. So this is a metaphor that the people would have understood that Jesus is saying, he is the one that lays down. Now, 
We'll get into a lot of this in a couple of weeks. We talk about Jesus being the good shepherd. But first and foremost, this is a sign of like real closeness and intimacy. This is not God. This is not Jesus saying that he will give you a list of things to do. But rather, Jesus is saying, I am the one. I am actually laying down my life for you. One of the things about being a shepherd is that you put yourself in harm's way for sheep. This is one thing that Jesus is saying by saying that he is a gate, that he would lay down his life for us. So Jesus is uh, saying that he is the, the good shepherd. He is a shepherd that is the gate, literally becoming the gate for the sheep. Now in this text also, before we get into the meat of it, Jesus says a couple of times that all of these other people are thieves and robbers. And what Jesus is talking about in John 10, 1, to, 1 through 10, and when he says repeatedly that the people before him were thieves and robbers, or anyone who uh, doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. What Jesus is warning against are false preachers and false teachers that would lead people astray. And what Jesus says is, not are they just saying untrue things, but when you believe those untrue things, it robs you. It robs you of a vital connection and a real relationship with God. You know, in Jesus' time, he was talking primarily to these Pharisees, and the Pharisees taught that your standing with God depended on you. And Jesus goes against the Pharisees so many times because what Jesus has really come to do is to show us a different way, that our standing with God cannot and does not depend solely on us, but it depends solely on the finished work of Jesus. But there's also false teachers in our day. Um, I won't call some names out, although that would make our YouTube algorithm go through the roof. (laughs) But essentially, there's a lot of false teaching that, as a pastor, to be honest, I'm actually very worried about uh, the church uh, and what we, what we have come to believe as true, the things that we are following uh, as a people. And it's never been easy to consume content, uh, sermons on any topic. Now, one of the things that is the most dangerous theology that will rob you of real connection with God is something called prosperity theology. Prosperity theology has changed over the decades. In the 90s, it used to be some preacher who would stand on the stage and tell you if you give some money, God is going to give you a Jaguar. And one side of the whole congregation, you're going to get a Mercedes, you're going to get a BMW, you're going to get a a Jaguar. And people would line up and give money, and they would be literally robbing them. Today's robbery is a little bit more subtle, but even more dangerous. They're not promising cars. Essentially, what they're promising is this. They are promising that you are just this close to the life that you have always wanted and desired. And what it does is it reduces the story of God to you and your desires. And it tries to jam an eternal and infinite and sovereign God into your world. And there's a million problems with that. The number one is the scripture says that our life is like a, it's like a vapor. It's here one day and then it's gone the next. It was never intended for you to try to fit God into your story, but the complete opposite, that we would see our lives as the bigger, as as a really vital and necessary part of God's story. And here's the thing, whenever you are listening to any preacher, I don't care where they are, if they get on a stage or behind a microphone and they're promising you that you can just have everything you want, man, that is, um, that's deception. And they're using you for their own gain. And here's the most dangerous piece about it. 
Because 99.9% of the time, it doesn't happen. And what happens is, I'm in conversations with people later who feel like God has disappointed them because they're holding God to the standard that some false preacher told them. So they feel, and sometimes you could feel, that God has failed you, when in reality, we were holding God to promises that God never made. So we have to be very careful uh, about these thieves and robbers who are trying to, who build platforms and multi-million dollar industries on false promises that they give people. God is not meant, God is not interested in making you the superstar of life. We are here one day and gone the next. And the best case scenario for us is to see ourselves inside of the greater and more beautiful story that God wants to write through us. Sometimes it's through elevation and sometimes it's through good things happening in your life. Other times, it's through us being a faithful person who follows God despite whatever comes towards us. So Jesus gives us these words and these warnings, um, uh, warnings against false teachers and these religious rulers. And essentially, what it all boils down to is what you see really in Genesis 3. Uh, Whenever God tells Adam and Eve and he tells them what to do, there is an enemy trying to rob them and says, yeah, but there's another way to get what God wants you to have. And he wants us to ignore God's words to us and to seek uh, to go out some, some other way. So Jesus, in this uh, section of scripture, um, gives us these things. He tells us that he himself is the gate that gives us security, eternal security with God. Now, as we were thinking about this as a teaching team, I thought about two really big errors that people can make when they approach this scripture. Because this scripture is not about purely physical safety, Right? So in our foundations class this past week, someone asked the question, if Jesus is our security, does that mean like I'm never going to get robbed? And like, if you go to the Bronx, I don't know what's going on. I can't promise you anything. (laughs) But what people do is actually, they cover up, they cover up um, real concerns that people have, and they use scriptures like this to just live entirely in the afterlife, in heaven. And what they actually do is they use scriptures like this to ignore suffering and injustice. And one of the big errors that people can have in approaching this scripture when Jesus promises us security, because he's not talking about physical safety per se, uh, is then we would use the scripture to ignore suffering and injustice. Now, if you are a thinking person, uh, you would know that in, in life, in religion, in philosophy, I don't know of a more complex and, and misunderstood topic and really difficult to understand than the problem of evil and suffering. And why does God, who is all loving and all powerful and all knowing, why does God permit evil and suffering? You know, you might be there right now in your life where you're asking that question, why? Why is God allowing this? And to be perfectly honest, I don't know that you'll ever get an answer to that question. And even if you did get an answer to that question, I don't know that the answer would be emotionally satisfying. Years ago, uh, I was sitting in Columbia's hospital with my late wife, Danielle, as she was going through uh, chemotherapy. And I'll, I'll never forget looking over at her as she was sleeping in bed and then putting on a strong face when she was awake. And as soon as she would go to sleep and close her eyes, I would break down. And I'll never forget one day praying like, Lord, Talk to me. Why? Like, why is this happening to us? I really thought that we had done everything the right way, and I just couldn't fathom how and why the Lord was allowing this to happen in my life. 
Now, after she died, uh, I had you know, a series of crises of faith where I didn't know what I believed about anything anymore. And one of the things that I thought was going to be true was I thought that the only way for me to be able to have real faith again was to get an answer to the question, why? And I never got that answer. I did get answers to a different question. And in some ways, I've changed the questions that I asked. I stopped asking why, and I started asking the question, to what end? To what end has this suffering brought in my life? You know, my wife and I, one of the... We don't, she doesn't watch a lot of TV in the house, and uh, one, of the show, one of the things that she does watch are those uh, home renovation shows. It doesn't matter which brand, she loves them all. Um, we all know what's going to happen. It's going to be an island, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> There's going to be a little pot filler. I, I want a pot filler bad. I mean, pray for that. Um, and I love the whole show, and you know, nothing makes me more mad as if my kids make me miss a reveal. Oh, Lord. <laughs> They're going to bed early that night if you make me miss a reveal. But there's two parts of the show that I love. I, I love it. I love Demo Day. I love it when they show this house, which sometimes is actually in decent shape, and then they take it down to the studs. And then what they do is, in the right hands, they rebuild it to be something masterful and beautiful. Over the years, I've realized that in some ways, my faith is almost like one of those shows that there was something standing that looked good and functional, and it worked. And I feel like suffering was a thing that was demo day in my life. And it took my faith down to the studs. What I didn't believe at the time, or what I didn't know just yet, was that God was a master builder. God was an architect. God had a creative vision for my life, not in blessing me with material things, but God had a way. He wanted to rebuild my life, my faith, my trust in him that would be able to persevere even if he doesn't give me the things that I wanted. And I have realized that that's a much more beautiful faith. If you look through the scriptures in, in, the, in, in Daniel, the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. <laughs> in Daniel 3, they utter some of the most profound words in scripture. So in Daniel 3, there's this there's this decree from the king that says, unless you bow down, everybody bows down and worships the king, you're going to go into this fiery furnace. The three Hebrew boys say, listen to this. We serve a God that is able to save us from this fire. But even if he doesn't, I'm not bowing down. Their life is beautiful in the life of scripture, in the eyes of scripture, because of that statement. And what I would hope for you is in the beautification of your faith, that you would have real prayer requests to God, real things that you are asking God to do. And at the end of it, you would say, and even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't give me the thing that I've been praying and asking for, I'm still going to serve him. I'm still going to trust him. If you want to know what version of faith is beautiful and is attractive, and it's compelling, and is engaging. It's not memorizing a bunch of scriptures to tell people. It's living a life that says, I will follow, I will trust in the Lord no matter what. So that's one error, um, that we can use the scripture to ignore suffering and injustice. While the scripture doesn't give us a full understanding of why God allows things to happen to people, um, it is meant to give us a boldness 
to encounter life's difficulties. So it's not that you would have no difficulties in life. That's not what Jesus is promising. He's promising you that in the difficulties, he will be there. When I was, a high school, when I was in high school, I was a, I was a young punk, man. I, uh, I remember one time playing basketball, and I was talking a bunch of junk to these guys, and I realized, like, oh, if I keep on talking, I'm probably going to get jumped right now. And um, out of the corner of my eye, I saw my brother and his friends come in. So then I kept on talking. <laughs> it wasn't that the difficulties disappeared. It was just that I had reinforcement. I knew I wasn't alone. In your life, when Jesus, when he wants to give you security that he'll never leave you or never forsake you, it's not saying you'll never have ch- challenges. It's not saying you won't have to work hard against injustices that you see in the city, in this world. It is saying that I am with you in every single step of the way. So that's the first error. The second error is reducing Christianity to just the here and the now. Reducing Christianity to just the here and the now. That is a second error of how people can approach the scripture. Um, Christianity does not make sense as a faith that is only about right now. You know, one of the best portions of scripture is in Hebrews 11. And in Hebrews 11, it, it is commonly referred to as a hall of faith. And it talks about all of these men and women who had trusted in God and they trusted in God. And there is this whole description of all people who put their faith in God and how God came through for them. And it's beautiful and it's encouraging. And then the scripture says, but then there were others. And it talks about all of these people who trusted in God and never received what they thought, what they've been seeking and asking God for. And one of the reasons that the author of Hebrews is so patient to include all of these people who trusted in God, even though they never received on this side of eternity what they asked for, was to inspire us, to know that we serve a God who promises us that one day he will wipe away every single tear and he will make all things right. But we have to have faith that sometimes we will not have the resolution of the thing that we were hoping for, We can continue to work uh, towards good in the meantime, trusting that he is still good. So number one, Christianity is an error, rather, to use this scripture to ignore suffering and injustice. And number two, it's an error to reduce Christianity to just the here and now. So that being said, Jesus is telling us that he is the gate and he wants us to have security, belonging, and standing in him. Jesus wants, wants you to have security, that you're not just questioning whether or not God would accept you. Now, if you are newer to faith and you're newer to Christianity, uh, this is a phenomenal uh, truth. And you know, when I first became a Christian in college, I had so much insecurity about my standing with God. I was constantly afraid that God was gonna like yank my salvation from under my feet if I made one mistake. And from the outside, I looked like I was doing amazing because I would every single day read my scripture for like an hour a day. I memorized entire chapters of scripture Uh, My life was, I was on the straight and narrow if there ever was one, but I was miserable. Every day I felt like I was a visitor having to ask for permission to go to get something to drink. I never felt like I was a child. I never felt like I belonged. So what Jesus is letting us know is that he wants us to really truly have this assurance. In Hebrews um, 10, 22 and 23, it says this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope 
without wavering, since he who promised us is faithful. God wants you to have a full assurance of faith. And we get that by trusting in Jesus, our gate, and taking our attention off of ourselves and focusing it on Jesus, our gate. So I think it means three things, at least three things, when Jesus says he is the gate. Number one, it means that our past is forgiven. This is the only way you will actually be able to rest. The only way you'll be able to rest is if you fully know that for everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, your past is forgiven. You know, in one of the narrative sections of scripture, it talks about, in Genesis, it talks about these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob was a con man. He cons his big brother out of their birthright. And the scripture says that Jacob is on the run after that because he knows his brother is trying to kill him, or he heard through the grapevine that his brother was trying to kill him. And Jacob's life is really an example of what it looks like to live a life and not be forgiven for your past sins and wrongdoings. You always feel like something is chasing you. Scripture said that Jacob was like never able to like fully rest. He was always nervous and always anxious because he knew his brother was coming from behind him. One of the most misunderstood truths and misapplied truths in Scripture is that we don't fully believe, and this is for people who have put your faith in Christ, that Jesus truly has forgiven you of your sins and there's nothing that's coming and chasing you from behind. Everything you've done, here's what Scripture says in 1 John 1 and 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and God is just. He will forgive us of our sins and he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus invites us to come to him to ask for forgiveness for our sins, and then we can trust that he has forgiven us because he is faithful and just. You know, years ago, my wife and I celebrated one of our anniversaries with one of these fancy dinners at a restaurant. Um, And you know a restaurant is good when they don't put anything on the table but a knife and a fork. No, we went to the steakhouse and there was no A1 sauce on the table. There wasn't even any salt and pepper. And here's why, here's the rationale of the chef. The chef knows that when they bring out the food that has been perfectly prepared, if you try to add anything to it, you're gonna mess it up. Jesus, when he was on the cross, said, it is finished. Not I am finished, but it is finished. The job he has come to do to nail all your sins to the cross, it's done. And if you try to add anything of your own goodness to it, you will make it worse, you will take away from it. So the invitation from Jesus in this, in this way is to come to him. It's to always turn our attention off of ourselves and our failures and to turn to look at him on the cross as the one who has forgiven us of all of our sins. And the way to access that forgiveness is by simply coming to him and asking him for forgiveness. Number two, it means that our life is in his hands. Our life is in his hands. One of my favorite scriptures is in Matthew 10 where Jesus talks about the depth to which God controls and God is involved with all aspects of your life. Listen to Jesus. He says this, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. That's easier for some people than others. (laughs) So don't be afraid. Listen to this. Listen to this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. We will find Jesus to be the gate, the one that can actually make us feel secure if we believe what he's telling us in Matthew 10 and other scriptures in the Bible, that our life is in his hands and we can relax, we can trust. 
Not one sparrow drops to the floor without your father's permission. The last thing that we see in the scripture is our future is secure. Our eternal future with God is secure. Now, one of the worst beliefs to have is that your standing with God depends on you and not on Jesus. And this is what scripture writers call justification by faith, that we can stand in front of God, not based on our own standing, but based on what Jesus has done. And here's what Jesus says a couple of chapters before this in John 6. He says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. Here's what Jesus is telling us in the scripture in John 6. He is saying that everybody that comes to him through the Father is safe in his hands. There's another portion of scripture which says that nobody, the the enemy can't snatch anybody out of his hand. And what this is meant to do is to give us security. Now, I said this last service, and I hope you hear it in the spirit that it's meant to be heard. Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. You're a JV sinner. He is, a, he is the MVP savior. Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. Does this mean that we should continue on sinning to test how good of a savior he is? Absolutely not. But this does mean that we can have security in trusting not in ourselves, but in him. So here's our invitation to you this week, to look to him early and often. Confess your sins to him early and often, to turn your attention away from yourself to Jesus, our gate, the one who laid his life down for us, and the one who has the power to take his life up again. I want to close today with a poem that my therapist wrote about hope. She writes this, faith and hope are intricately connected. Your hope needs to be anchored in something or someone or just, or our hope would just be magical thinking. When our faith is in the author of life, the sovereign God who holds all things in his hands, who who holds us in his palms, we have hope. The more we grow in our faith, in our living God who holds our yesterdays, our today and our tomorrow, our forever, in his all-powerful, all-loving hands, we have hope. Not because we wish it, not because we desire or want it, but because of him. For he is God, the almighty, the all-knowing, the always present, the always loving one. For we know whom we believe, that he is faithful even when we are faithless. For he is unable to lie, nor give us false hopes, nor spout false promises. We know he is able to deliver his promises. In spite of our trials, temptations, testing even our doubts and faithlessness or hopelessness. And he is our living, active, all-powerful God. And because of whom God is, we have faith, faith in him, faith in his word. We have hope. Jesus, we thank you that you are our gate, that you are our access, you are our security, you are our hope. Help us this week, Lord, to turn our attention away from ourselves and on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.